Please open with me in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we're going to read verses 1 to 12 so we get the whole context. But as many of you know, last week, Pastor Peter dealt with verses 1 to 8 so that I could focus more this week on verses 9 to 12. We'll read the whole thing, and those 9 to 12 is what we'll actually look at in detail, more detail this morning. Let's stand together for the reading of the authoritative word of the Lord. Hear God's word to you this very morning. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Here's where we pick up this week. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Let's see if you can tell what this list, the things in this list have in common. Irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. Incompatibility. Disability. Alcoholism. And of course, the most ever most popular, irreconcilable differences. What do these all have in common? They are examples of what is called a no-fault divorce what we've seen in the passage we just read is that jesus clearly taught us in matthew 19 that there is no such thing as a no-fault divorce Hmm. divorce is tragic it's destructive and it's very very sad isn't it it was never the intention of our creator as we just read Jesus points out what God has joined together. Let not man separate. So in every case of divorce, someone is at fault. In the case of the extremely few exceptions where an innocent party is allowed to proceed with a divorce, someone was still at fault. It wasn't no fault. As we saw last week, One such exception is when a spouse has had sexual relations with someone other than their spouse. 
then the one who is sinned against may sue for a divorce in such cases because in effect, the cheating spouse has already broken the covenant. Someone was at fault. There wasn't no fault. Now, Pastor Pete last week wrote a bunch of checks that I got to cash. If you remember, so last week he said, we're going we're gonna to preach, I'm going to preach on the foundation of marriage, and then Pastor Santos is going to deal with the applications, right? <laughs> so, now I'm only teasing because we actually decided that together. I just want to have some fun. But as we come to the text, here's the important thing to see before we even jump into anything, and that's this. We do not come to the text the way that the Pharisees approached it, do we? How did the Pharisees approach the issue? They came just because they wanted to trap Jesus. Their hearts weren't open to God. They didn't want to know God's will on marriage and divorce. They came because particularly they asked this question in front of a huge crowd because they wanted to get Jesus to incriminate himself. You remember what happened to John the Baptist when he said to Herod, hey, that ain't lawful what you're doing. What happened to John the Baptist? Lost his head. That's number one way they were trying to trap him. The other way they're trying to trap him is if he took sides between these two famous parties, the two famous rabbis who had their different views on divorce. If he picked one, then, of course, they would say, look how lax and liberal Jesus is, and half the crowd would be upset against them. If he picked the other one, they'd say, wow, how strict Jesus is. He doesn't have compassion. We don't come as the people of God, I would hope, with that in mind. We come to humbly sit at our Lord and Savior's feet, to take His yoke upon us, to learn of Him, that we might grow in His grace and in His knowledge, that we might know the will of our Heavenly Father, that we might know what's best for us, what's best for the community of faith, and what's best even for the world when it comes to marriage. And even in this case, as he mentions, divorce. So our attitudes make all the difference in the world because here's the issue. In times of suffering, in times of difficulty, or in our culture, in times of boredom, let's be real, we look for the loophole. Somewhere in this Bible, there's got to be a way out of this marriage, right? We look for the escape hatch. There's got to be a way I could go, you jump out of the escape hatch. And we come to it looking for the way out. That's not the way we should be coming to it. We should be coming to it and to this passage wanting to know what Jesus is best was, wanting to know how we can live in the holiest state of marriage in a very unholy world that doesn't uphold that sacred bond and covenant. Someone once said this. I love this. John M. Drescher says this. Someone has said that getting married is like buying a phonograph record. First of all, you remember some of you older folks here, they're like records. One side had songs, and if you flip it, there were songs on the other. Everybody know what that is? Okay, because sometimes you tell these, these stories, and if you have younger folks, they're like, what are you talking about? So I'll, re- I'll repeat this now. Someone has said that getting married is like buying a phonograph record. To get what's on one side, you need to take the other side also. After marriage, we soon see that we have many differences which call for adjustment. Now, here's the fun part of this, I think. While in courtship, similarities are stressed, in marriage, differences become more dramatic. What looks alike in the moonlight appears different in the daylight. Man, ain't that good? 
for those of us who were married, yeah. And we also noticed that the, sometimes the very thing that attracted us to our spouse isn't that cute. Oh, he's so endearing. You know, a few months of that, okay, I'm done with that. It's old now. You're annoying me. It's a fact, the human nature. So that's why Jesus emphasizes the permanence of the marriage bond and how man is not to separate what God has joined together. He wants us to recognize and internalize the fact, especially as believers, that divorce simply isn't an option. Take it off the table. I always tell couples, look, get the D word off. I don't want to hear, when I counsel, I say, I don't want to hear you threatening each other. That, that's not even in purview here. Keep it out. He wants us to see that unless our spouse has engaged in sexual immorality and committed adultery, we have two choices. We can either remain in the situation we are, which may be in a situation of suffering and misery, and just keep the status quo, or God gives us another option. I know this is kind of like a, I should have had a V8, but we can work on the marriage. We can give, we can compromise, we can forgive, we could show love. We could do what Jesus did for us, right? I always think of uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when, a man, when, when God calls a man or a person, I should say, to follow him, he calls them to come and die. And this is especially true for husbands because we know it from Ephesians 5. When, a, when God calls a man to marriage, he calls him to come and die. Give himself for a spouse. Now, you can understand when you hear the, that heaviness of, of how permanent marriage is. Maybe you can understand why uh, the disciples reply to Jesus this way. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. But Jesus' response is even more telling. Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it was, has been given. In other words, Jesus says, you said it. But don't worry, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. I'm not going to leave you hanging there. But that's exactly what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7 in more detail when he says it's good for a man not to marry. But then he goes on to explain, but not everybody has, has the gift of singleness. So in, in most cases, you should get married. So what we're going to see this morning, I kept it down to two things because this is a big topic that can easily get unruly on us. Um, what we're going to see in Matthew 19 is just two things be happy about that first of all we're going to see cases in which divorce is permitted not commanded i want you to see that we're just saying what's permitted not what's commanded and the second thing we're going to see is cases in which marriage is not recommended Hmm. but we get it from the text not from me so let's take a look at the first one cases in which divorce is permitted not commanded So let's look at that. Cases in which divorce is permitted, not commanded. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now what's clear here? Let's talk about what's clear for a moment. Is that if your spouse has engaged in sexual relations with another person, you are permitted to get a divorce. That's pretty clear from the text. Now, but I do want to say this. In the mercy and in the amazing grace of God, there are countless examples of couples 
who decided not to call it quits in such, in such cases and instead rebuilt their marriage from the ground up. I've been blessed, for instance, to witness firsthand as a pastor, excuse me, couples who had this happen in their marriage. There was a lot of forgiving. There was a lot of crying. There was a lot of patience. There, and in this case, in the cases I'm thinking of, there was deep, genuine repentance, genuine hard work, lots of counsel, lots of rebuilding. But I can honestly say before the Lord Jesus, their marriages are stronger now than they ever were before. Before they were on a faulty foundation. Now they are more in what the Bible calls in love. Not just an emotion, but a lifestyle. And they're, they're great examples for young couples. They actually can mentor other couples. So I've seen God do the amazing by His grace. But what Jesus is telling us here is that if the offended, that the, that the offended party is not bound to take the offending party back. And He doesn't expound upon why this particular exception is allowed here. So I'm not going to, at this point, I'm not going to speculate as to why we just know that it is. And sometimes we can just say that. But what we do see here in this passage, and it's important, it's pastorally important, it's important for the family of God to see this, is God's concern for those who have been grievously sinned against in this way. In other words, God deeply has compassion and care for the party who was sinned against. It's important to see this. For all practical purposes, the offending party has broken the marriage covenant. And so the offended party may obtain a legal divorce and remarry. This is how the Westminster divines saw it in the Westminster Confession of Faith when all the different pastors and elders got together and to write up the, what we believe the Bible teaches as Presbyterians. But this is what they say, and I agree with them in this. In the case of adultery after marriage... It is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Very important to see that. That, In other words, the innocent party is not called to now suffer for what the other party did. And at this point, I do want to deal with it. I can't summarize everything the whole Bible says about marriage and divorce. Certainly not in one message. I'm going to try to stick as much as I can to Matthew 19. But at this point, I do want to, want to, want to bring up one other passage that I'll be referring to now and then in this message. Because what we, we would see, what we would normally ask is those who know the Bible somewhat, is there any other clear reason that a divorce would be permissible for an innocent party? And we do see at least one other, and that's in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Um, And what we need to see here is Jesus only gave us one reason when He was on earth and had His earthly ministry. But He gave us this other reason when He was in heaven and ascended and He gave it through His hand-picked apostle, the Apostle Paul. You know this whole idea of a red-letter Bible? Um, I'll I'll sum it up for you in really good English. And I'll tell you why. Paul's words are the word of words of Christ. Amen? It's his apostle. He got them directly from Jesus. So anybody who tries to make a separation between Paul's teaching and Jesus' teaching, no. It's the word of God. Paul spoke for Jesus. Okay? 
So we have Paul gives us one other reason that Jesus didn't give us. And let me tell you my personal opinion as to why this is the case. I'm sure theologians can give you a longer list, but this is a simple one. Jesus, look at the context. Jesus was speaking to the old covenant people of God, those who all claimed to believe in God and be a part of the covenant. So he was not addressing a situation that Paul found himself in. What, what situation was Paul in? Well, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and the gospel was getting out to Jew and Gentile. And what would happen is you'd have a married couple who made a covenant, right? Till death do them part. And what, happened, what would happen is one of them would get saved. So that would mean one's a believer, one's not a believer. And this is what was happening in real life and why Paul had to address it because the Corinthians asked him these questions in 1 Corinthians 7. But what happens when one's a believer and one's not a believer? What do we do then, Paul? Are we still bound to stay married? And, and this is what Paul says. Listen, first of all, let me see if I got the reference so you can look it up with me. He says this. Uh, first of all, he makes it clear. He says, if... The, the non-believing spouse is willing to live with you, believer. You must not divorce them. So just because they're not a Christian, that doesn't give you license to divorce. That's number one. But this other one I want to point out, he says, if the unbeliever, unbelieving spouse abandons the believing spouse, then according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, this is what Paul says, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So here's the point. If the person physically leaves, they're gone. <laughs> they're like, I'm done. I'm just not going to, I'm totally leaving you. Um, there, we, we could speculate there's a couple things. Obviously, that person is not saying, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to stay celibate the rest of my life. That's the first thing. If a person totally leaves you and abandons the marriage vow, um, what are the chances that they're going to you know, go and to a convent or something. You follow? You get what I'm saying? I mean, so, so in a sense, there is, in the majority of cases, there's going to be sexual immorality involved, right? But secondly, it's very difficult to keep a vow with someone who's literally not there. And when, when folks say, well, then you're bound, here's the problem. Paul clearly says, and we're going to get this in a minute, that some have the gift of singleness and some don't. And his answer to those who burn with passion and have a hard time controlling themselves is what marriage so how is it just how is it right for this innocent party who's been abandoned to now have to wrestle with a gift they don't have no matter what the reasons that's how i see but no matter what the reasons paul clearly says they're not bound and that's the very word he uses when in, in uh, Romans 7 when he says, if a spouse dies, the other one is not bound. They're free to remarry. Those are the two clear ones that we have in Scripture. And they're totally in harmony with one another. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. Um, let me say this too, real quick. There's the issue of violence. And that's not addressed directly by either of these texts. But many pastors, theologians, would see um, severe violence, unrepented of violence, unchanging violence. They would, they would see that as falling under the abandonment 
clause. We could debate that. This is more of something we could talk about pastorally. If you have that question, I'm happy to talk to anybody about that. But that's more of a case-to-case situation as well. But I can't preach on that this morning because it would take us the rest of our time. So that's the one other thing. Uh, Again, come see me. We could talk about it informally or maybe even like a Sunday school type class. I'll be happy to talk about that. But let's talk about the big takeaway for this morning as we look at this. After hearing Jesus set forth the permanent abiding nature of the marriage covenant and its near impossibility to legally be released from it, the disciples ask this. They say this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Now, I don't know about you, but I find Jesus' response actually a little bit surprising and striking. You know, you expect them to say like, oh, come on, you know, like we do with our kids. You're overreacting a little bit. Marriage is a beautiful thing. No, no, you, you've misunderstood me. Let me give, but Jesus doesn't back paddle, backpedal one iota, does he? The interesting thing here is Jesus says, exactly. He says, you're right. And that's the second thing and the last thing I want to bring out of the text is that there are times when marriage isn't recommended. And that's what we're going to look at now. Look at what Jesus says in verses 11 and 12. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, I want you to see something here. It's important. Jesus is saying that in a sense, it's better to not get married. And then he says, but not everyone can accept this idea. But then he adds, but everyone who can accept this should. Now, I'm going to kind of give you a little example of this. It's like when a young man comes to me and says, Pastor, I think I'm called to preach. I think I'm called to be a pastor. Now, it's not a perfect example, but this is kind of close. And what I'll usually say, can you do something else? (laughs) Can you see yourself doing anything else? And if they say yes, I say do it. I'll tell you, I I wouldn't have said that when I was bushy-eyed and bright, you know, bushy-tailed and, and, oh, come on, you're all skeptical. But being in the ministry for decades, it's not for everyone to be a pastor. It's, a special call of suffering. Not just as a normal Christian, but there's much more suffering involved when you're a leader in God's church, especially a shepherd. A shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You with me? And so that's a similar analogy, not an exact. But Jesus does say this. It's not for everybody, only for those to whom it has been given by God. And Paul exactly says the same thing, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, when he says, I wish that all men were as I am, which means single. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. In other words, the calling of singleness is a high calling. It's a holy calling, just like marriage is a holy calling. And only some have that particular gift. And Jesus gets into something that's a little bit interesting for us in our day. Some were born eunuchs. Now that means physically unable to 
uh, consummated marriage, to have marriage relationships. The other one is some have been made eunuchs by men. Ouch, that's rough. But that means in those days they had eunuchs that would serve the high court of the king and would be around a lot of royalty, a lot of royal women. And so that what they would do is they would unfortunately physically alter the person so they wouldn't be tempted and they wouldn't have to worry about that area. You with me? Do I have to go any further? <laughs> so that was... Uh, that. But the third one, there, and this is the group that's really being focused on by Jesus here, some have renounced marriage for the kingdom of God. The third group. What does this mean to renounce marriage for the kingdom of God? Now I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Because what Jesus mentions in passing, in one brief sentence, the Apostle Paul opens up for us beautifully. These were very uh, powerful verses to me as a new Christian, still to this day, but they're very uh, effective. Verses 32 to 35. Hear the word of the Lord here. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live, you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now and then, my friends tease me. And I'll say, they'll say, hey, did you want to go to this concert? Do you want to go do this thing? And I say, well, let me check with Mayor first. It's my wife. And of course, they say, oh, I see who has the pants in the family. Uh, uh, uh. You know? Why don't you be a man? You got, you know, you, you got the, the weak backbone. And then they'll say, you know, who's the boss in this marriage? You think you got you to check with your wife about everything before you could do something? And to that I answer, you bet. It's called marriage. Not only is it not being wimpy or weak, but actually God calls me to take her into consideration when I make decisions in my life. I am no longer by myself. The two shall become what? One flesh. I have no right doing things without consulting in her, or consulting with her, and vice versa. And, and Paul puts it this way. A married man is concerned about how he can please his wife. And what Paul is saying is, he should be. He's made that covenant. He's made that commitment. You know, you've heard that old saying, happy wife, happy life. There's truth to it. You need to put your wife first if you're married. But the unmarried person can focus mainly on pleasing the Lord only. They can be more single-minded and focused on God and on ministry. In addition to this, you have to see that the unmarried Christian can minister the gospel in times of persecution, times of deprivation, and in times of difficulty with no worry that the, the, the partner is going to suffer. Or that your kids are going to suffer and be persecuted too. See, the single person doesn't have anyone else to worry about. They could say, it's just me. And that's one of the other reasons that Paul says it may be better 
um, to not marry if you can stay single. But notice what he does. It with, Paul doesn't say it, and Jesus doesn't say it. They don't say, some remain single out of selfishness. <laughs> it's not what he says. He says, they, they say, some remain single for what? For the kingdom's sake. He's not just saying, because it's annoying, you have to give sacrifice and, and, and be a servant. No, those are good things. But just as there is a warning about entering into marriage inadvisedly or lightly, so singleness as a calling also contains a warning. Now I'm going to get a little personal. When I was first saved, I I just got to be real here, I was on fire for Jesus. I got a brother here who was with me since those days, so you can talk to him, Mike, later if you don't believe me. And I would wake up in the morning, and literally the thought that dominated my mind was, where's the next non-believer I could share Jesus with? And I couldn't wait to do it. I literally, literally, people wanted to like lock me up because they were like, dude, you need to like, and I was just like, that's it, man. That's my, and, and you know, it was my joy to do so. In so many ways, as I'm an older Christian now, I wish I had a little more of that. But I was on fire for that. There would be times I would literally be able to sit in a car and have a deep spiritual conversation and share the gospel as I watched the sunrise because nobody was waiting for me at home. I was you know, a young adult. I didn't have, other than work, I didn't have really any other responsibilities. And so I had a lot of freedom. So I got to a point where I figured, you know what? I'm going to be like Paul. I'm not going to get married. And I want to share this with you. I just see my young, my young friends who were like in their teenage years or so, I would see them dating, you know, doing the dating game with a new Christian girl this week and the next, and they'd be spending all their time watching TV. And I'm like, there's people going to hell, <laughs> you know? And as a young up, you got to get, this is, this is the time where we have all this time on our hands. Let's go, man. And so that, and I really had this firm belief I was going to be single like Paul. There was only one little catch. I didn't have that gift. My biggest struggle since the day I came to know Jesus, and it was increasingly so, was dealing with the issue of wanting, you know, of of struggling with what Paul talks about, passion. And and I didn't, for a while, I wasn't putting the two together. I just thought I could kind of like just, you know, bare knuckle it. You know what I'm talking about? Like that kind of Christianity, just do it. I'm just going to do it, you know. And... The, the more the time went on, I realized this ain't working too well. And it's when the, the Lord Jesus brought Mary into my life, I saw her as the gift she was. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Jesus is right. Only he who can accept this should accept it. And I can't accept it. Paul said the same thing. Again, 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 8, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So now here's the question. What happens if you're single and you don't believe you have the gift and you desire to be married and yet you still haven't found someone yet at this time? Let me just give you a little bit of advice, having been on both sides of the fence here. My advice, and I think it's the Bible's advice, is you still need to live like a single person, of course, in purity, and and knowing how you could just worry about mainly how you could please the Lord. You still need to live like that until the Lord brings someone into your life. You with me? So even if you don't believe it's your long-term goal or plan, 
which some people do believe, praise the Lord for them, you still need to live in such a way. Now listen, I'll tell you, here's, here's some of the things that single folks don't always think about when it's a trade-in. You know, there's pros and cons of being married, not being married. But I remember when I first got married, one of the hardest things for me, and it's going to sound crazy, I remember like almost the first night it happened, there's this lady laying in my bed at night. And I'll tell you what bothered me. That was normally my quiet time with Jesus. Some of the most, if you look at my journals, I had some like ecstatic experiences with God when it was just me and him right, in the twi- right before sleep. I had powerful, powerful times. I could show you in my journal the times that Lord, the Lord literally changed my life and showed me things. We had sweet fellowship. And now there's this lady laying here. I'm like, uh... You know what I mean? It's kind of like, this is the time of me and the Lord. And she's like, I don't think so. And even though it's rightly so, part of me, I, had, I experienced a little bit of a loss, didn't I? In terms of that, that special time. You know, like where, where uh, they walked in the cool of the day. Well, I was used to just me and Jesus. I'd have to share it with another person, give them a chance to talk. It was just him and me. Well, now I had to kind of move over and learn new patterns. So what I'm saying is take advantage now of that time where you don't have another person to uh, have to answer to, have to please. You have this time of the Lord. Dive into your relationship with the Lord more and more. Realize He is your mate for this season, whether it's going to be the rest of your life or right now. Jesus loves you. He is your partner. And I'll tell you, like I said, I had a special relationship with Him when I was single. That's just changed. It's just different being a married person. Take advantage of that. Now I'm going to preach to the church. Only a couple more things we're done. Please, please stop treating single people like they're incomplete. I, can't, I have good friends, and I have a few friends who believe they have the calling, and, and they're later on in life, so they do have the calling, I believe, um, of being single. And they're happy. They're content. They ain't got no problem with it. But whenever they come to a church situation, um, and most of the time it's the ladies, forgive me, I don't mean to be, be sexist, and sometimes I'm sure it's guys, but most of the time ladies gather around and they start saying, hey, have you met this girl? Like, they're always trying to match them up. They're always, so they always ask them questions about their love life. And, and I'll tell you what, it could, be, it, it could really offend, it could really hurt uh, single folks. Because what are you saying? That I'm not okay by myself? Right? Are you saying that my estate is incomplete right now? That I need another person? We need to be sensitive to that. Some folks are very happy with this gift. And as a church, we need to um, get around them and encourage them. And I think it's important to see this too. I know there is the, the predisposition. It's normal. You know, birds of a feather flock together. You ever hear that? And so if I'm a young person, a young married person with young kids, then I'm going to hang out with young people with married kids. If I'm an empty nester, oh, man, I don't want to mess with those little rugrats. I did my time. I want to hang out with other empty nesters. Or, you know, if a single person, we're going to have the singles group. Listen, we need each other. We should be gathering as a mixed family of God. I'm not saying that never to do those other things, but we need each other. From, and not only that, how are the younger couples going to learn how to do it right if they don't have the older couple saying, can we talk? Because you're learning from other people that, how do you do I don't know. How do you, I don't know. And they have unique, single people have unique contributions. 
And a lot of times, because they have so much more time with the Lord, um, they're able to really minister to us in ways that folks who are crazy busy don't have that same ability. I'm going to close with this for time's sake. I want to say something that's important. Jesus spoke these words only about two weeks before he was going to give himself for you and for me on the cross, for all of our sins, for our failures in marriage. Yes, there is forgiveness. Yes, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Thankfully, Jesus was going to the cross for our our mistakes and sins as single people. When we didn't do what was right, when we didn't follow Jesus, when we didn't trust Him enough, and we gave in. The world wants to say this about Christians. We are either, what's that one church that pickets everybody's funeral? Yeah, we're either Westboro, you know, Baptist, right? Total fanatically crazy you know, God hates whoever, whatever, put fill in the blank kind of people. Or we're totally permissive. They want us to just say, everything's acceptable. You know, all you need is love. It doesn't matter how you live. And the, the fact of the matter is, Jesus does not condone permissiveness. We have to hold high the standards that Jesus tells us is true for our own good, for the good of others, for His glory. Never lower those standards. But on the other hand, we need to be a hospital for the sick and for the hurting. We need to come around those who are broken by divorce for whatever reason. And we need to show the love and the care and the concern that the shepherd has for the lost sheep. Or the sheep that has now returned and needs healing. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And one thing that we all have to learn as believers, no matter how old we get in the Lord, is even these, you know, I wrestled in prayer. I'm going to say this, we'll close. I wrestled in prayer with some of these issues and I had to admit to the Lord, there's some things I didn't like that he was saying. And in that admission and in that, believe it or not, the Lord ministered to me and he brought me around. I know this is crazy. I'm getting all experiential on you. To just see that God is concern for our well-being. And we're going to talk about this next week. One of the things we don't understand about divorce, no matter how much we suffer, is what it does to children. Next week, Jesus is going to, we're going to deal with Jesus' interaction with children. And I believe Matthew didn't just uh, higgledy-piggledy, just, oh, let's, let's just add the part about kids right here. I think it's marriage, divorce, remarriage, and then children. Because who are usually the greatest victims of divorce? Kids. These commands are commands of love, are commands for our good, and it's for, for our best, and for the best of society, even though they don't believe it. May God grant us the mercy and the grace to trust them, even when we don't always understand why. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words from your word. We thank you, Jesus, that um, you're firm with us and yet so loving. You were willing to put your money where your mouth is, as it were, and literally bleed and die in our place. You deserve our all, our trust. 
our obedience, our faith, our hope, and our love. And, and this morning we pray that you would uh, work in our hearts what's pleasing in your sight. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be good lovers. And I mean that in the biblical sense of loving you and loving others, especially our spouses, our children, those who have been broken by divorce and other ways. Oh, Lord, just help us to be the community of faith, hope, and love that you say that we are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.